we won't start in the scriptures this morning, but we'll get there in just a minute. Uh, by way of introduction, if you guys have ever seen video clips, or well, welcome, Schwensons. Yeah, latecomers. Uh, video clips or television shows, uh, one of the great marvels of nature uh, is the Pacific salmon. Matter of fact, when we were in Seattle years ago with the girls, we took pictures and they've got these life-size uh, cutouts of salmon on the wall and you'd see that some of these salmon you know, are bigger than your girls. You know, they're longer than your girls. But some of these salmon, <clears throat> excuse me, part of the thing that's marvelous about the Mantinea is that you know, they're hatched in freshwater streams up in the Pacific Northwest. They hatch and they spend a short period of their life in those freshwaters, and then they migrate downstream into the Pacific Ocean. Some of these will live in the Pacific a couple years. Some will live several years. But when their internal clock tells them that their time is winding down, they are driven, they are compelled to seek the stream beds from which they came and reproduce themselves before they die. This is a big deal. You know, they're not, nobody makes them do this. This is just what they do. So they're in the Pacific, they're all up and down, north and south in the Pacific Ocean. And when this internal clock tells them, they start heading back to the Pacific Northwest. And then they find the river that they came from two years or three years or five years earlier. They find the river they came out of. And they go up this river till they find the stream they came out of. And they go up that stream until they find the tributary that they came out of. In fact, in one remarkable, I kid you not, one remarkable story, there was a hatchery in the Pacific Northwest in which one of these fish was raised and tagged. And whatever it was, two or three years later, they found the wrong fish in one of their vats in a tank. And this Pacific salmon, which they had hatched, had gone downstream, literally... It had not only come up to find its stream bed, it had vertically jumped up a steel pipe. It had forced its way up what was, what was a runoff, it wasn't even a stream, uh, to jump into the tank from which it came years later. I'm serious. This is how they're compelled, they're driven. And scientists still don't know entirely. Part of it is uh, smell, apparently, and other things. They get back, not just close, they get back to this very portion of the stream bed from which they sprang. It really is a miracle or a marvel of nature, no small thing. But remember, in this process, these guys have been out in the Pacific and they've survived their life and they are compelled to reproduce here before they end their life. But as soon as they start this process, think of this, they, they, they are going uphill against the flow, counter flow all the way Till they die. So once they've started this process to get back to their stream bed, their goal is to get back and reproduce before they die. Once they start this, it's uphill against the flow all the way. Because remember, of course, the streams are flowing down into the river. They're going up the river from the ocean, up the river into the streams. It's against the flow all the way. It's uphill all the way. If they stop, they don't stay where they're at. They just go downstream. They're just carried downstream. So once they've started the process, they have to fight the current all the way or they lose. They will not get their goal. They will not reach their goal, that stream bed where they need to reproduce if they quit going against the flow. And, you know, of course, they've also got predators. You've probably seen pictures in Alaska. The same thing happens where the bears are in the streams. You know, they're catching them, 
as they come upstream. There's eagles, depending on where you're at. There's wolves, of course, and cats. There's also fishermen, you know, successful stand sometimes and sometimes not. But they've got all these predators that they've also got to get past, but they've got to fight the flow of the stream all the way up or they will not be successful. And I share this by way of introduction this morning. You and I as Christians, we are called basically to live our lives counterculture. We're called to live our lives against the flow of the culture and what Paul and John called the world system that we inhabit, just like the oceans and the rivers and the streams of the salmon. We are called to swim, if you will, against the flow of the culture and the world system around us. And just like those fish, if you fail to do so, you don't just stay in some happy, neutral ground. You're like flotsam, debris, that the stream carries down with it. You're just junk on top of the water that's carried with the force of the stream someplace else. And I'm here to tell you, and, and I, by the way, what I'm sharing this morning in some ways can be very dis- depressing and discouraging. And my goal is not to depress or to discourage you this morning. But I would say, I hope that it's a wake-up call, and I hope that it's a way of maybe removing some blinders we may have on our eyes or over our eyes or next to us about the real state of both our lives and the church in which you and I live. And I don't just mean lion and lamb. I mean the church of Jesus Christ in the world today, but most specifically in the West. The church is in dire straits. The church looks like a dead salmon floating downstream. That's my take, and I'll tell you why here in just a minute. But I hope, depressing statistics aside, that we wake up, basically, and accept the challenge to live our lives counter-culture against the flow, that we will choose to live our lives against the stream of the world around us. You remember Stan, in a great teaching for 2006 last Sunday, it was this challenge about valuing what's valuable and about asking yourself in the morning and in the night, what in this day was of value for Christ? What stands up to an eternal estimation of value. It's a great way to live. And my hope also in part this morning is that you and I will face this year, 2006, with a renewed determination to live counterculture. And I'll just tell you, if this is not consciously in your mind, you've already lost. I'll just, it's, a, it's a given. If you're not going against the flow of things around you, you, you've lost already. You're not even in the race. You're not even headed in the right direction You're just debris floating downstream with the rest of the debris. So my hope is that we're all challenged to live 2006 counterculture. To the depressing side of the statistics this morning, this is one of the reasons, some of the information why I think the church is in dire straits indeed. Ron Sider has written a book recently called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. Its subtitle is, Why Are Christians Living Just Like the Rest of the World? Why Are Christians Living Just Like the Rest of the World? He's got one, two, three areas he's just giving some data on. This is just statistics that have been gathered in the last uh, seven to eight years in some, some cases. Starting with divorce. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I, I'm not even thinking who's divorced here or not divorced. But divorce is a, is a tragic thing. Malachi says it's something God hates, but it's a big deal in our culture, as you know. In 1999, 25% of those who called themselves evangelicals got divorced. One in four 
of those people just like you and me. When it says evangelical, it means they believe in God, in the Trinity, in Jesus Christ. They've trusted Him as their personal Savior. They believe the Bible is God's Word. They believe in heaven and hell and eternal reward or judgment. One in four of these people, just like you and I, hold, hold the same doctrine and theology, got divorces in 99. In 2004, latest year with statistics, the number of those who called themselves Christians getting divorced was the same as those who do not call themselves Christians. The same. The same. And uh, I've not been divorced, but I know plenty of people who have. It's a destructive, tearing, wrenching, difficult process. Nobody goes into it because they want to. But in this huge area of life, it's so difficult, Christians look no different than the world around them. No more successful in marriage than the world around them. And by the way, just so we don't misconstrue this, these aren't people who got divorces and then became Christians. 90% of these people who came to Christ then got divorces. So they're in the church. They're in the household of faith. Giving is an area that we actually talked about late last year. But just to rehearse that a little bit, this data came from State of Christian Giving, a survey by John and Sylvia Rossval. These are the same statistics we looked at. Evangelicals today give less than 3% of their income in charitable giving. Less than 3%. Giving over the last four decades has declined as wealth has risen. That is, the wealthier we have become, Christians living in America, the less money we give. The more money we get, the stingier we become. The more like Scrooge we become, so to speak. The richer we get, less we give. And giving in real dollars was higher during the, the Depression than it is now. In other words, at the time in which we have the most disposable income in the history of the nation, we give the least. In all those historical terms, we give less now. Even in the worst, most dire days this nation has seen during the Depression, in real dollars, more was given in those days than we give today. We're not, we're, in fact, we're almost indistinguishable from the world in our giving as well. In the area of sex, and you guys know, we live in a sex-saturated culture. In fact, uh, you know, Pascal said the human heart is shaped for God and it can only be ultimately fulfilled by God. But the truth is, if we don't fill it with God, we try and fill it with anything and everything else. Our culture tries to fill it with sex primarily. The Southern Baptist Conference, recognizing this years ago, started a program most of you have probably heard of called True Love Waits. This was a challenge to get young Christian adults to commit, to make a conscious commitment to say, I'm going to stay sexually pure. I'm going to save sex for marriage. I'm not going to have sex outside of marriage. This was the commitment. And they enrolled in this program. Two and a half million young Christians made this commitment. I'm saving sex for marriage. Two and a half million, which is great. All this is good. However, a seven-year study done by Columbia and Yale universities found that about 12% kept the pledge. 12%. One in eight. Now, you know, these young adults, they're serious. They're serious-minded when they make the pledge. They wouldn't be in these places to do this if they weren't. 12%. And frankly, even if you say, I don't trust uh, Columbia and Yale... The stats, you know, there's margins of error in all of these. It might be plus or minus 2% or 3% or 4% or whatever. But even if they're wrong by 100%, these are terrible statistics. In other words, in the area of sex, 
Christians live just like the world. George Barna, in his study, and I'll mention some more of his study in just a second, found that 25% of those people who called themselves Christians were living together out of wedlock, which was down a little bit from the culture in general at 33%. But one in four of Christians, those who identified themselves as Christians, uh, were practicing fornication, something the scripture talks about regularly, and, and this was normal almost indistinguishable from the world around them. So here are three areas, divorce related to marriage, giving, sex, in which it's hard to tell a Christian from a non-Christian, in which the church looks just like the world around us, just like the larger culture. Uh, George Barna, you probably know by name, does lots of sampling, data collection, statistics, related to all kinds of things, but a lot having to do with the church. Switching gears a little bit, In taking samplings and information, polling people who go to church, they call themselves Christians, they go to church. Here's some things he found. Among Protestant churches, he found that in less than 4% of Protestant churches in the United States was prayer identified as one of the top priorities for the church. Prayer was not a top priority for 96% of those churches calling themselves Protestant. Worship was listed as a top priority by less than 20% of these same churches. Worship, Christians are called, John 4, thanks to Eric, our home webpage, Christians are called to be worshipers. Worship was identified as a key priority for Protestant churches in less than 20% of these groups. I think this is significant too. Less than 10% of the people in these churches say that they worship any place outside of the Sunday morning meeting, less than 10%. In other words, worship is not a way of life to those going to these churches. Worship is what they do when they go to church. This is not worship. You guys remember the biblical concept of worship is I bow down before my superior. I bow down before God. Uh, Coming to church on Sunday morning is one expression of this. this is not, though, inherently worship, but one in ten, less than one in ten. And also, I thought this was telling. In the same group, more than half of the people going to the Protestant churches said that they felt the presence of God in their corporate worship, less than half. If you look at the world, the church looks just like the world in key, significant, important ways. You can't tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, between the church and the larger culture. And for the most part, our churches themselves have become dead salmon, floating downstream in which you can come to a service and not even half of you walk away not feeling like you met with God. Jesus says, if two or three gather in my name, I'm with them. Peter says, angels long to look into the things that are exposed as the church meets. Half of the people going to these churches say they don't experience Christ or the presence of God in these services. Just like the world. Empty Christians seeking to fill themselves outside of Christ. The church looks just like the world. This is why I said this could be depressing. It's challenging at least. But if you look at the church in the West, and this data is related to the church in the United States, Christians don't look a dime's worth of difference different than the world that we live in. Now, contrast that with this. To some scripture now, data aside. This is the state we find ourselves in. This is why I say we've got to take off our blinders and wake up and smell the coffee. Where are we at? Where are we heading? 
Jesus says in Matthew 5, I'm going to be skipping around. You're welcome to jump in on any of these in your own Bibles if you'd like to. Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking to Jews, but speaking today to those who he calls by name, he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Remember, in Jesus' day, salt was the key preservative. In fact, until refrigeration, salt was the way you preserved things that were decaying. He said to his people, you are the preservative in this culture. And you know, when salt loses its preservative nature, you know what you do with it? It's useless. You throw it away. Because it can't do the only thing it's good for. He says in the next verse, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. You put it on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. That's what you're called to. You're called to be salt. You preserve the area around you. You're called to be a light to those around you. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I'd say I would submit to you today that the church of Jesus Christ does not know Matthew 5.16. Our light is not shining. People are not glorifying our God in heaven. Jesus calls the church to be this preservative, salty influence in the culture around us. He calls us to be light in the dark world around us, and yet clearly we have lost our collective savor and our collective light. Paul says in Philippians 2 that you will prove yourselves, prove yourselves through the demonstration of your life, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse perverse or bent, twisted generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth the word of light. That means the gospel. Do you know it's hard to be a light in a dark world if you're all covered up, if your light on that stand is all covered up. It's, or it's hard to hold forth to represent Christ in the gospel if that word of Christ is somewhere sitting on a shelf, unrecognized and unused. Peter puts it this way, and by the way, I've just selected a few verses. You know, you could go on and on and on about what the church is called to be in the world. These are just a few. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of the darkness into His marvelous light. We're supposed to be holy. You guys know holy means it's set apart for special use. Set apart for special use that we proclaim God's excellency. So here's the deal. The church is called to be a preservative in a rotting culture or world. The church is called to be a light in a spiritually dark environment. The church is called to stand straight and true and tall in a generation of bent and twisted humanity. We're called to be holy people set apart, taken out of the culture of darkness into God's culture of light to declare His excellencies. But it doesn't look like that's happening. Now, If I tell you the statistics about church in general or other people, it's a little safe because it's somebody else. But of course, you've got to 
to make this valuable at all, of course, you've got to turn the spotlight in as well and face the personal challenges or the personal calls Christ has on anyone who names his name. So if you go back through these, just ask yourself. You can do a quick inventory just as we roll through this this morning. Just ask yourself this. Are you being successful in living in the world but not becoming like the world? Or have you and I become the flotsam, the debris that the stream of life and culture in the world is just carrying downstream with it? What does this look like for you and I personally? Not somebody else, not another church, not a statistic, but you and I. Are you and I being faithful in our marriages? It's a big deal. Are you and I being faithful in our marriages? Are we being generous and cheerful in our giving? And this is not a plea to give to the church. Are we characterized by generous, cheerful giving? Are we keeping ourselves sexually pure? God created sex. Nothing inherently wrong with sex. But are we keeping sex within its God-given framework? Are we characterized? I mean you at home. I mean me at home. When no one else is around. Not in Sunday morning meeting. Are we characterized by worship and prayer? This is just, worship and prayer is just a vital relationship with God. This isn't work that we perform per se. It's, it's a normal relationship with our Father and with our Savior. Do you and I see transformation in our own life? You know, any of us who've come to Christ, we looked a certain way before, and the truth is the longer we know Christ, the more difference we should see in our life, where we were and where we're at. Do you and I, as we look back, do you see transformation in your life? Or do you say, gosh, I look about the same as I did before? I'd been a Christian about two and a half years. I was still smoking pot. I was still living a life absolutely outside of God's will and almost clueless to it. And I remember telling this guy, this Christian who made himself available, I told him, you know, I accepted Christ two and a half years ago. And I said, the truth is, my life looks the same today as it did before. And he was gentle and he was helpful and but basically he helped me see that, yeah, we, we need to make some transitions here. You and I should be able to look back over our life and say, I'm not what I used to be. I started here with Christ when I trusted him for my salvation, and I've seen his transforming work in my life so that now I look back and I say, as many people do, I'm not what I should be, and we're not what we will be, perfected all of us in the future and eternity, but I'm not what I was. The transformation process is going on. I am engaged. Is that true for you and I? Are we saying no to the excesses of life around us, and and our culture is one of excess all the way? Or are we becoming that debris floating downstream with the force of the culture and the world around us? Now, I read a few passages about the church and the church's calling. And listen just to a few passages about individuals calling. If you're a Christian, these are all true about you. These all apply specifically to you and I, we who name Christ's name. In John 17, Jesus, the night before he is crucified, if you remember John 17, is called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he's interceding for his disciples and also for those who would believe in him through them. That means you and I. He was praying for us that last night on earth before his crucifixion. And among other things, he prayed this. To his father, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. 
Sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify, make them holy. Set them apart by the truth of your word. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. When Jesus was thinking about us 2,000 years ago, the night before his crucifixion, and he prays for us to the Father, he says they're in the world, but they're not of the world. And I don't ask you to take them out of the world. But I ask you while they're there to set them apart for your purposes. Do it through the truth which is in your word. And I'm sending them into the world. You remember all of us as Christians are ambassadors for Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Ambassadors for Christ. Heaven is our home. But we're on this mission to represent Christ in the world in which we live. That's what Jesus says here. So that we are in this world. But we are not to be characterized as those of the world that belong to it. We represent another power, if you will, another homeland. We're in it, but we're not of it. We're not to be conformed to the image of this world. In Colossians 1, Paul says in verse 22 that Christ has reconciled you, brought us back to favor with the Father, in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, I grant you on any given day, none of us may be able to say this, that we're holy and blameless and beyond reproach, but this is what we're called to. This is the direction we're supposed to be heading. He says in chapter 3, verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy, set apart, and beloved, loved by God, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, This is the kind of character quality you and I are called to. So when we're doing our personal inventory, not the church out there, not the statistics, but you and I in this process of transformation, is this what your life looks like? Is it what my life looks like? 1 Peter 1.14 says, Don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, like the world that we live in. Ignorant, lustful. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, you be holy in all your behavior because it's written, you shall be holy because I'm holy. Remember, we're called out of darkness to Christ. He's holy. He's separate from sin. He's like us. He's been tempted in all of it, but he didn't sin. Then he lays his life down for us on the cross and sets us apart now for himself. So he says, I'm holy. I call you to be holy. So as you and I look at our lives, as we do this inventory, we can look back and say, do we see transformation? Am I the same kind of person I was when I trusted Christ? Five months ago, five years ago, 25 years ago, whatever. Or do I see this transformation process? Are you and I characterized by holiness? That we don't look like the world around us because we are set apart. Do you and I embrace humility? Again, not thinking ill of ourselves, but having an appropriate view of who we are and what we are before God and before others. Are we generous? Are we compassionate? Are we characterized by gentleness? Gentleness biblically means being willing to concede and not to grab things for yourself. Are we characterized by gentleness? As Christians, not just as the church, but as Christians, we are called to live a life that goes against the flow. We are called to live counter-culture. Paul says in Romans 12, uh, 
He says, I urge you, he's just presented all this great stuff that's true of Christians, and then based on that, he says, I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. You guys remember, when you put a sacrifice on the altar, who it belonged to? It belonged to God. It wasn't yours anymore. So Paul says, to us Christians, he says, your life is supposed to be like that sacrifice on the altar. It's not yours anymore. It belongs to God. It's his. And then based on that, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. This term here, conformed, means don't be pressured by the influence and the force of the culture and the world around you into its mold. You know, those salmon are facing this force or this opposition which they must resist to get where they need to go. They're resisting the force of the flow of the stream around them. Paul says here, you and I are just like them. We are called on to resist the force, the compressive forces of the world and the culture around us so that we don't fit into its mold, that we're not shaped by the force of the world around us. And this is what I mean. If you're not consciously living counterculture, you are being conformed to the world. You can't help it. We live in a world which has pressures. It is exerting on you and I every day. So if you're not consciously fighting against that force, you are being conformed by that force. You are being conformed into the mold of the world. Paul says, don't be conformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, there's only one way that you renew your mind. It's by the truth of the scriptures. There's only one way you're made holy in this world. And I don't mean positionally in Christ, but I mean practically. It's by the sanctifying effect of the truth of God's word. If you're not in your Bible, you're not being transformed. If you're not in your Bible, your mind is not being renewed. If you're not living in your Bible, you are floating downstream. It is a given. It's not a question. It's a given. The cosmos, you remember the, the Greek term world is cosmos, and it means this whole system that's at odds with God. It is opposed to God. It's headed up by Satan, ultimately, Paul says. So if we're going along and getting along, we're simply being conformed to the image of the world in opposition to our calling to be transformed into the image of Christ. The key text or the passage that I'm actually heading for is in Titus 2, you know, there's all this negative stuff, and it is negative, and it's tragic. It's tragic. Uh, but there's this positive stuff, too, and there's this call. And it is possible for us to live counterculture successfully. It is possible for us to live lives that honor Christ. We can do it. It's possible. Listen to what Paul writes in Titus. Uh, Titus was Paul's representative, and he was left on the island of Crete. And he was setting things up in the church, so they believers had been had be, uh, become Christians there. The church was in its infancy. Paul left Titus to get things rolling, to get them in order. But listen to this. Titus 1.16. This sounds like Paul's writing to the church here. He says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable. He's talking about people who call themselves Christians. Being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. It's as if God looks down from heaven and he says, is there anybody down there that I can give a, a, a work to, a good deed to? And he says, nope. There's nobody there who can handle it. They're detestable. 
They name the name of Christ, but they deny it in everything they do. This sounds like the statistics we've looked at this morning related to the church today. But this is the call. This is the deal. This is how we get past all the negative and get on to the positive. <clears throat> Paul writes in Titus 2, 11 through 14, this is a great passage. It's one of the great passages in the New Testament. <clears throat> Paul says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, say no to ungodliness and worldly desires, the desires that are ours just by nature of us being in this world, say no to those and instead live sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age. While we're here, live sensibly, godly in this present age. And while you do, do this, he says. This is what makes the difference, I'm convinced. He says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Paul looks at the Cretans and he says their reputation, even though some of them say they become Christians, they look just like the rest of the Cretans. No different. No different at all. But Paul says, you've got to say no to some things so that you can say yes to others. So the place we start in this transformation and this counterculture is to say no to some things. He says here, say no to ungodliness and worldly desires. Sometimes you say, what's a worldly desire? Uh, William Barclay has a great definition. He says a worldly desire are those desires that we don't want to show God. If you're thinking, is this legitimate? Can I do this thing? Should I do this thing? Just ask yourself, can I go up to God the Father and say, here it is, what do you think? Or when you contemplate it, do you think like the child who's stolen the cookie? Do you, do you want to turn your back just a little so that God doesn't see what you're doing? A worldly desire, something that you don't want to show to God. In 1 John 2, John writes about the world and he says, don't love those things in the world. And what are those things? Well, they're the lust of the flesh. Remember, lust is a, a, a passion or desire that's out of line. It's a passion run amok. Uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, these things are not of the Father. When we're carried away by, by unholy desires for whatever it is, or an unholy, inappropriate uh, elevation of ourselves in God's before God or before others, John says, all these things, these aren't from the Father. These are the things we say no to. <clears throat> Chuck Swindoll said, generally in this area, he said, we've become a generation of people who worship our work, who work at our play, and who play at our worship. I thought that was good. That looks just like the world. That looks just like the world. So we say no to this lifestyle in which we indulge ourselves and look like the world around us. And instead, we change the direction of our gaze. We change the place that we're focusing our attention. Once you say no to some things, you say yes to others. But this is the way you do it. Paul says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. If you know anything about the life of the early church, the early church was expecting Christ to return at any moment. And that's what Paul's referring to. The early church was holy to some degree and in some significant way because it expected Christ to return at any moment. 
And so the early church and those Christians were waiting for Christ. So, you know, if you're a child at home and you know that mom or dad are just about to walk in the door, you know you don't do the things you get in trouble for. Like you don't punch your, your sibling or you don't break the vase or whatever. If you know mom or dad are right outside the door and they're getting ready to come in, you don't do a bunch of things because you're smart enough not to be stupid. But also for us, this is not just about this. This is about this, this sense that, you know, Peter says elsewhere, you haven't seen Christ, but you love him. And so it's not just about not being in trouble, though this is a legitimate motivation. I'm avoiding trouble. But better than that, they were expecting to see Christ return. They wanted to see him face to face. You know, the trouble for most of us is we have not adequately disengaged from the world enough so that our passions or our hearts are free to be set on Christ. That's why the world still holds so much appeal. We don't see Christ. We're not looking for the blessed hope. We're content to live in the earth of the world, of the culture, because it's comfortable. And it is pretty comfortable. And we live in a time of... of Reckless abandon, we have material wealth, we have material possessions. And you know, the truth is you can live at this level, comfortable, fat and sassy, in your time on the earth. The trouble, of course, is your heart's not satisfied. Why is sex so prevalent in the culture? Because people are looking for something to fill the vacuum within. Or drugs, or you name it, excesses at work. It can be legitimate or illegitimate things you pursue because all of us have this God-shaped vacuum we're seeking to fill. But Paul says, look up, look to Christ. You know, if you're shooting a bow and arrow, you don't look at your feet. You look at the target where you want the arrow to hit. And it's where your gaze is fixed, sort of anyway. The arrow's probably going to go that direction. You know, if you're driving a vehicle, driver's ed school, they tell you to aim high or steer high because you're not going to go right where you're looking. You, you want to see where you're going down the road. As long as you aim high, That's the direction you're going. Well, that's exactly what Paul says to do here. He says, lift your gaze from the world around you and look for Christ. If you're looking for Christ, you can't go far wrong. Do you remember Paul said the Cretans were worthless for any good deed? In chapter 1. In chapter 2, Paul says, those who have fixed their gaze on Christ, he says they are zealous for good deeds. They're zealous for good deeds. This means they have a passionate commitment to do the things that Christ is doing in the world today. So when you and I fix our gaze on Christ, when we remind ourselves of what's true of Him and us and the world and the truth of His Word, we're transformed and we develop these passions for the things Christ is passionate about. Then we are about generous giving or faithfulness in marriage or purity in sex, or whatever area of life you're thinking, because that's where our heart's at. We're transformed when we look up. Malcolm Muggeridge was a well-known, maybe much less so today, but Malcolm Muggeridge was this well-known guy in the last century. Uh, died, I think, in the late 1990s. Uh, he lived life well from a pagan perspective most of his life. He was a Brit. He was a newspaper columnist, reporter, wit, you know, gadfly about Europe. Uh, he was big into communism in the Soviet Union. He was a supporter of communism as a way of life. 
But all this changed towards the end of his life when he became a Christian. So he lived most of his life in the world. He was a total worldling. He loved it and he did it well. He enjoyed everything there was to enjoy. Listen to what he says when he looked back on his life. This is near the end of his life. He wrote, When I look back on my life nowadays, which I sometimes do, what strikes me most forcibly about it is that what seemed at the time most significant and seductive seems now most futile and absurd. For instance, success in all of its various guises, being known and being praised, ostensible pleasures like acquiring money or seducing women, or traveling, going to and fro in the world and up and down in it like Satan, exploring and experiencing whatever Vanity Fair has to offer. In retrospect, all these experiences in self-gratification seem pure fantasy, what Pascal called licking the earth. They are diversions designed to distract our attention from the true purpose of our existence in this world, which is quite simply to look for God and in looking to find Him, and in having found Him to love Him, thereby establishing a harmonious relationship with His purposes for His creation. I love this. This was a guy who saw both sides. He looks back at the worldling time and says, it's like a guy who has nothing better to do than he kneels down and he licks the dirt off the ground. That's what he saw as passions and his idea of success as a non-Christian. But he says now in his, in his older age, in his older years post-conversion, he says, you know, now I realize my whole goal in life was to get to know God. That's harmony, that's peace, that's joy, that's fulfillment. And in Titus, that is exactly what Paul's talking about. You're saying no to one set of temptations so that you can say yes to Christ. You're saying no to licking the dirt so you can say yes to the heavenly banquet. You and I are called, Titus is a call, like the salmon to swim upstream, counterculture against the flow of life. We're to have this forward view. We're not looking at the world as it is around us, but we're looking at Christ. We're waiting for his return so that we can become passionate, impassioned about Christ and those things Christ is passionate about. That leaves us this transformed person who is zealous for good works and whom God can use in this world. This morning's message is in some part an introduction to a series that we'll look at, uh, Lord willing, for the next eight or nine weeks in the book of Malachi. Uh, Malachi specifically, because as I was thinking about reading some of this stuff and doing some reading about the church and the state of things that we see today, Malachi is a book that perhaps preeminently deals with God's people not being what they're called to be with the thought of God's return. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, written to the Jews to remind them of Messiah's coming. And Malachi addressing all these issues that were prevalent in Judaism among God's people in his day, just as we find ourselves in the church today. Hard to find, even in the New Testament, a book that more succinctly or directly uh, confronts the issues that we confront today as the church of Jesus Christ than Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. We're going to address these things, the ways in which the church is called to be different than the world, and maybe some ways that we are not. But also, as the second teaching in 2006, I want to propose this 
just as a mentality for you to carry through 2006, that you tell yourself consciously, I am determined this year to live counter-culture. I am determined in 2006 to swim upstream against the flow of the world and the culture around me. I'm making it my determination to say no to the things that I used to be or no to the things that are true of the world in general so that I can say yes and lift my eyes up to look for Christ and become transformed into his image and be passionate about the things Christ is passionate about. Let me just encourage you, exhort you. This week, when you're home, when you're in your quiet times, when you're reading your Bible, praying, meditating, thinking... Ask God, Lord, in what areas of my life am I untransformed? Lord, in what areas of my life do I look like the culture and the world around me? Lord, what areas of my life do you want to address in 2006? And I guarantee for all of us, there are areas that God wants to address. It's a given. Write them down if it helps you, whatever, but confess those things as deficiencies to God and ask him for help in specifically addressing them. Be intentional. Be conscious. And after you do that, look in your Bible and find some verses that touch on the issue, the area of your life that you know God wants you to see change in. Find some verses that tell you the truth about those things. I can tell you, I've already picked my verse for 2006. Already picked it out. And so I'll tell you, this isn't, we're a week old in a new year, and I can tell you it's already affecting the way I'm thinking because I've written it down, I've got it in my office, I'm looking at it, I'm reminding myself, how does that affect what I do today, Lord? So think about it. Do an inventory. Give those things to the Lord, and then find some verses in your Bible that apply to those areas. Focus on those verses and start looking for transformation. Decide you're going to go against the flow. In the end, let me challenge you with this. In the end, do you want to be a bloated dead fish? carried downstream. A bloated dead fish carried downstream. It's stinky. Detestable, Paul says. Do you want to be a bloated dead fish carried downstream or do you want to jump headfirst upstream against the flow towards Christ? This seems like an easy decision to me. Bloated, dead, yucky, stinky fish or swimming headlong, headfirst, committed upstream, against the flow, counterculture, towards Christ. That's the challenge. That's what I want you to think about for 2006. It's not a thus says the Lord, but ask yourself which you want to be. I invite you to share my determination to swim upstream, counterculture, against the flow in 2006. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you died on the cross so that our sins could be covered not so that we could live as we choose on this earth, but so that we could be transformed into your image. Father, I confess, we confess that we are not what we ought to be, and that in many ways each one of us sins and falls short of your glory. And Lord, that's true of the church, and as members of the church of Jesus Christ in the world today, we confess we are not what we should be. Lord, thank you that you're a God of mercy and compassion and grace and that you long for us to simply bring you these things so we can be forgiven and can get on with the process of transformation. 
Father, I pray that you help each one of us to make it our aim this year to go against the flow, to look for Christ, to find in Christ our soul satisfaction, to make it our goal to be passionate about the things Christ is passionate about. Lord, to be transformed and to be useful to you in the days you give us, the brief days, Lord, you give us our time on this earth. Help us to live in such a way that you will say in eternity, well done, and in such a way that we'll be glad we did. Thanks, Lord. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.